The James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, has been exploring the depths of space since its launch in 2021. It has already made some amazing discoveries, such as finding water vapor on an ultra-hot exoplanet. But some of its discoveries are also puzzling and surprising, such as finding six massive galaxies that formed when the universe was only 800 million years old. Scientists call these galaxies universe breakers because they break our understanding of how the universe works. What are these galaxies, and what can they teach us about the history of the cosmos? Let's find out. Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. We are online at whatsleftpodcast.com. You can find the link to our blog in the episode notes. Please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications, share your favorite episode, and drop down our information wherever you found this episode. My name is Andy Libson. I'm a teacher here in Oakland and a socialist. Um, and as you can see today, um, we don't have Jessica. We don't have Eduardo. Um, both Eduardo's in vacation or kind of got some things to do in Colombia, uh, in South America, and and Jessica's is taking a trip right now this weekend. Um, but we are joined by Eric Lerner. Um, people may who've been with our channel for a while may recognize him from an episode we have had back two episodes back in July 2022 or 2020, um, where he talked about the Big Bang never happened, plasma fusion. Um, energy, and also his thoughts about what's really, how the universe is really constructed and how that's connected to his work as chief chief scientist at LPP Fusion. Um, and Eric Lerner has uh, wrote, wrote a book, controversial book, uh, entitled the, the Big Bang Never Happened, and has been pretty active in some of the debates that have come up recently around the origins of the universe as a that have come as a result of the findings of the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, so Eric has agreed to join us and really talk about the intersection of the crisis in cosmology uh, with the idea of energy production here on, on Earth uh, and for humans. Um, so thank you, Eric, for joining us and being willing to kind of revisit this discussion now that we have new observational data. Okay, well, thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Um, so where would you like to start? Um, well, actually, I want to say this first, and I told you this early in the episode. Um, I want to thank you for, for just for the work you've done. Um, I, and I know it's been hard because uh, there are people in, as apparently, it's a long tradition in science to basically hound out any alternative voices about how things might really be constructed. But before I ran into you and into your work, I did not know there was a debate around whether the Big Bang had ever happened. It was almost like if you thought that wasn't the case, you didn't believe in science, like that you were a creationist thinking that the, the universe or the, war, the earth had been 5,000 years old or something like that. And um, it, was, it really was eye-opening for me in terms of not just the field of astronomy, but the field that I dedicated much of my life to, science, it has impacted how I've seen the entire field. Um, so I really feel like the work that uh, you you have done, uh, Wallace Thornhill, uh, Hennis Alfain, um, people I've started to become familiar, I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing, you'll get them right, I'm becoming more familiar with that really have struggled in anonymity, at least I never heard about them, 
but have really held the line on no, this is something that we think we believe. This is something we believe, and we're going to fight for these views because we actually think they're valid. And and fighting for the space for for discussion within science. And I did not realize that science had become such a such a kind of um, oligarchic clique. Um, I knew about those problems, but I didn't realize how deep those problems penetrated. So I want to thank you for doing the work you've done and for being willing to like share that and fight for those ideas, but also really coming here on what's left and sharing them, sharing those ideas with us. Well, yeah, I, as we'll discuss uh, during the session, it's wrong to identify cosmology with the whole of science. I mean, cosmology has an enormous profile in the mass media um, that, you know, cosmology is physics, physics is science, none of that is true. Cosmology is, is done by a few thousand researchers. It's a very small portion of physics. Um, and uh, most scientists today are actually biologists. Um, so, but you're right that huge ideologically based problems have developed within cosmology that have an enormous impact when refracted through the mass media on how people in society, how people in the working class view science. And that is of first order importance to the ideological warfare that's going on in the world today. Well, why don't we start with um, basic, I wonder, maybe summarize some of the most, the, the controversies, the controversial views you were kind of putting forward um, prior to James Webb Space Telescope. And then we now have data and talk about what has, what has happened since. So maybe just summarize right. what you were putting forward before and then how that some of those views have either been confirmed or shaped by the new information we've gotten from the James Webb Space Telescope. Right, okay. Well, potted history, uh, very briefly. This debate has, in reality has been going on for uh, 50 years, for half a century. I mean, the initiator of the debate over the Big Bang was uh, Hannes Alfing. Hannes Alfing is was not an outsider to the scientific uh, effort. He won the Nobel Prize in physics in 1970 for his work in the field that I'm also working in, which is plasma physics. So a plasma is a electrically conducting gas. And most of the universe, stars, the space between the stars, consists of plasma. And it's important on Earth for many reasons. We, of course, use low temperature plasmas in the devices called plasma uh, TV screens. But it's also where fusion reactions take place in devices that people are trying to develop, including ourselves, to produce fusion energy here on Earth, which could possibly be a source of cheap, clean, unlimited energy to replace uh, 
fossil fuels entirely. So he was working in this field that intersects these two studies of all of astrophysics, astronomical objects at all scales, and fusion energy. And the Big Bang theory really became popular and dominant in the course of the 1960s. So very soon thereafter, Alfane started to criticize it from a number of standpoints, especially from the standpoint that it did not, its predictions did not correspond to uh, observations, but also from an important methodological standpoint, which I'll get into more, is that it wasn't the way the scientific enterprise should work. It was basically an attempt to impose a mathematically disguised ideological standpoint on the universe to basically say how the universe should be. Sort of a quasi-religious standpoint, not to observe how the universe actually is. So again, just to hurry the introduction, I got involved in the field uh, in the 19, the following decade in the 1980s, I got to know uh, Dr. Alfane and uh, was enormously influenced by his writings and uh, his guidance. And uh, I sort of became well known in the field when I published, uh, when uh, Vanguard uh, imprinted, uh, published my book, The Big Bang Never Happened in 91. Um, Dr. Alfane died in uh, 1994. So I sort of became the public face of this debate. Now, in 2004, we organized a open letter to the scientific community signed by dozens of scientists, which was published in New Scientist magazine, critiquing the Big Bang and publicly saying that research into the contradictions with the Big Bang should be funded, which it wasn't being funded, which was really crippled this debate. Um, in the period 2019 to 2020, the accumulation of evidence from the Hubble Space Telescope especially, and from other instruments, was increasing the gap between the predictions of the Big Bang uh, hypothesis and observations to the point that it couldn't be ignored. While they were still ignoring the alternative viewpoint that the Big Bang never happened and that the theory was wrong, they did recognize that there was something wrong. And cosmologists started to use the term that we had been using for more than a decade, which is the crisis in cosmology. And we started to see that term multiply very much within the mass media. 
So that's what was happening when we talked back in 2020, the crisis in cosmology had become wide, uh, widely acknowledged, but the alternative is still not being openly debated. Now, this didn't mean that we were unable to publish at all. We were able, I and my colleagues were able to co publish contradictory information, which we were able to say, this contradicts this prediction, this contradicts that prediction. What we weren't able to publish, and we still haven't been able to publish in the biggest magazines, is the basic concept that this indicates that the entire concept is invalid. I've made the analogy to the famous tale, The Emperor's New Clothes, that the situation is like, uh, it's okay to say, gee, I can see the emperor's elbow through his clothes. I can see, you know, the emperor's knee. I can see the emperor's rear end. But if you say the emperor isn't wearing any clothes, no. then you're stupid or unfit <laughs> for your job. So that's the situation that had developed. Now, last year, just about this time of year in August, we had two simultaneous developments. One was the new giant telescope, James Webb Space Telescope, JWST, started returning data that was in, again, complete contradiction to the predictions that had been made. It was completely consistent with the alternative prediction that there was no Big Bang and the universe is not expanding. Um, and simultaneously, I got the opportunity to publish an article on the Big Bang Never Happened debate in, uh, on the website, uh, the Institute of uh, Arts and I, uh, the Institute of Arts and Ideas. And in the context of the JWST, that went viral on a small scale. So it went viral to the extent that some of the cosmologists were saying, well, their, their moms and grandmas were saying, well, what about this? And they had to reply. So within the field, people who had blogs, videos, uh, series, started to reply um, to a certain extent, not really addressing the scientific issues, but saying, oh, this is all nonsense, this Eric Lerner is, doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, to the extent they address Hannes Alfane, they would say, well, you know, he was just wrong, you know, Nobel Prize or not. So um, that debate has been developing. We have more of our colleagues who have been publishing papers based on JWST, not a large number, but a significant number saying this is contradictory to expansion. So that's a major shift. Now, what we haven't got is 
a major mass media, you know, the level of the New York Times to cover this debate, or even uh, Science Magazine and the major uh, news journals within science. At the moment, they're not touching them because they're aware of the blowback and the right. blowback affects journalists. The big bang cosmologists will attack journalists and say, this shows you don't understand science, you don't know what you're talking about. So we think that that's going to change in the, in the coming year. Uh, so that's sort of the overall situation. So maybe we should get into some of the reasons why the the new data is contradicting the Big Bang. Is that yeah? Like that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Okay. We well, let me let me. Uh, and so, as, I, as I understand it, you're going to talk about the two things you mentioned: how the recent findings contradict the time frame that is given related to Big Bang, that 13 billion, and also this notion of the expanding universe. That's that evidence I'm less familiar with, but I, I remember you saying right. there's evidence about that. The, okay. The first big contradiction deals with an unequivocal test, geometric test, of whether or not the universe is expanding. This is a test that was first proposed very soon after the Big Bang was formed, uh, hypothesis was formulated, before it was even called the Big Bang, expanding universe hypothesis was formulated uh, by a researcher called uh, Tolman. So this is called the Tolman test. And what he pointed out, and no one has contradicted, is that if the universe is expanding, and the Hubble redshift, the shift of light to the red part of the spectrum is caused by this expansion, then what you find is a very striking optical illusion, which is described by this diagram, is that because galaxies or other objects emitted the light that we see when they were closer to us, then they look larger than they would at the same distance if the universe was not expanding. So in a non-expanding universe, space like space we have here on Earth in the solar system, as an object gets further from us, its apparent diameter gets smaller. It's common sense. But in this expanding universe, if the universe is expanding, that's not true. So because it, objects were closer to us, when they were uh, emitting their light, the apparent size of an object looks like this with increasing redshift. Now remember, everyone agrees that there's a relationship Red, as redshift gets bigger, distance gets bigger. So what you see is that at small redshift, the apparent diameter of an object gets smaller. 
with increasing distance, but then a minimum is reached right around a redshift of one, which means the wavelength of light has doubled. And beyond that, the object's apparent radius gets larger. Obviously, this is not something that happens in a uh, uh, non-expanding universe. So that's a clear test. So what happened is that starting at the beginning of the century, the Hubble Space Telescope started to look at these distant galaxies at high redshift up to a redshift of five, where you see that they should start getting larger. And lo and behold, they didn't. They got smaller and smaller as you looked further and further away, as the redshift increased. So at that time, I and my colleagues, Ricardo Scarpa and Renato Falomo, started to compare this data from the HST with the prediction of a non-expanding universe in which some other phenomenon, a currently unknown phenomenon, caused the light to lose energy as it traveled. Hypothesis called tired light, uh, colloquially. And that at all points, there's a linear relationship between redshift and uh, distance. And we found a perfect fit, an absolutely perfect fit between the size of these galaxies and what was predicted by the non-expanding hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Another way of looking at this, this physically and mathematically the same, is surface brightness. The surface brightness of an object is you divide its apparent luminosity, how bright it seems, by its apparent size on the sky. In non-expanding light, surface brightness is independent of distance. Something that's twice as far away, it's four times as dim, R squared, and the radius of the area on the sky is four times less. In an expanding universe, because of this optical illusion, the surface brightness goes down radically. So, however you viewed the mathematics, it was a perfect fit for the non-expanding hypothesis. Now, let me emphasize, non-expansion is not what some people have called a steady-state universe. We're not talking about a universe that doesn't evolve. We're talking about a universe that has, is evolving, has continuously evolved, but is not expanding in space. Our planet Earth has evolved enormously over the last four billion years. We all know that. It's evolving at a quicker and quicker pace because it's now dominated by social human social evolution, but it hasn't physically expanded. That's the same with the universe as a whole. And of course, without the expansion, there's no need for 
an origin in time for the Big Bang. So or that, no, no need for things like dark energy, which were spoiled. Right, we'll get to that. Yeah, okay, sorry, go. And so what happened with JWST? Well, JWST, much physically larger telescope than HST, also its sensitivity is shifted into the infrared so it can peer at more redshifted objects. My colleague Ricardo and I wrote a paper saying, what was JWST going to observe? And we said, it's gonna observe things that contradict expansion and confirm non-expansion. And we tried to get this published and they flatly refused. They said, some of the things they said were amazing. One editor said, you, it's unscientific to say what JWST is going to observe until after it's observed. Wow. But that's the essence of science. What's useful about science is it gives us the ability to predict the future. And that's the whole scientific theory. That's the whole point of having a theory. What's going to happen yeah. under certain circumstances, including observations that have not yet occurred. So this is what happened. So HST was observing galaxies that seemed very small if you make the expansion assumption. So since they were smaller than they expected, and they expected them to be larger, they said, well, these are baby galaxies. They're physically much smaller than today's galaxies. That runs into a lot of problems too, but that's what they said. So JWST made this problem much worse because JWST from the very start, from July, started to observe galaxies that were even small. So this diagram gives an idea of what we're talking about. 10,000 parsecs is the radius of typical bright galaxies today. So our own Milky Way galaxy that we live in, we can see in a dark sky, that's 15,000 parsecs in radius. And parsec is three light years. It's an astronomical unit. Drawn to scale, we put this symbol as, you know, a typical galaxy today. If the universe is not expanding, the size of galaxies, and these are bright galaxies all selected, have roughly equal brightness. HST was observing galaxies that are about the same size as the Milky Way. JWST was doing the same. Now, this is a little out of date. Uh, if we used more data, this blank area would sort of be filled in, and there's no tendency for the size to change. If you use the not expanding Big Bang, HST was observing galaxies that were 10 times smaller. So that's this ratio is symbolized 
by 10 times smaller galaxies. JWST was observing galaxies that were 100 times smaller. So that's this little dot compared with this giant galaxy. But independently from the amount of light we were receiving, you could estimate there are various ways, I'll get into that, various ways of estimating the mass. These galaxies were just as bright and just as massive as the Milky Way. So you had the absurd, physically impossible situation in the non-expand in the expanding uh, hypothesis that these giant galaxies were squeezed down to one one millionth the volume of the Milky Way, and it wasn't just that that uh, this was absurd; it was actually impossible. And that's why we term, as some people term these impossible galaxies. You can independently measure the mass of these galaxies by measuring how fast they're spinning. And that can be measured from the width of the spectral lines in their spectrum. You relate that to their linear dimensions, and you can get a measure of their gravitational mass. From the light and the spectrum, you already have a measure of their stellar mass, how much the mass of the stars is. Since you have to assume the cosmological hypothesis to get this linear distance from the observed angular radius with both the expanding and non-expanding hypothesis, you can compare the gravitational mass with the stellar mass. With the non-expanding hypothesis, the Big Bang never happened hypothesis, gravitational mass is comparable to or exceeds the stellar mass in all cases at all redshifts which is what it should be because these galaxies have a lot of gas in them that has not yet formed stars. But with the expanding Big Bang hypothesis, you get a total contradiction. The gravitational mass is as much as 10 times less than the stellar mass. That's impossible. Stars are obviously gravitating. So this is an absolute, by itself, this is an absolute contradiction of expansion. And this is one of the things we're trying to get them to debate, and so far they have. So let me break there and take further questions to just elaborate this point. This is just one well, key point. Yeah, I would, I would just say, I mean, part of me has a question about this, this, um, uh, this this thing you're you're showing here with this picture with the blue dots and the and the yellow and the yellow dots, um, what what is the difference between the blue dots, which seem to be they would I guess I would understand I want to understand why you have a set of blue dots and a set of yellow dots are those the same data coming back right so this is right what we observe 
with the JWST and HST telescopes is the angular diameter. So the apparent diameter of these small galaxy images. In order to go to the linear diameter, how big the galaxies really are in light years or parsecs, which as I say is just slightly a somewhat bigger measure, we have to make the assumption, hypothesis, the universe is expanding or it isn't expanding. So the blue dots take that data and make the assumption the universe is not expanding. So you can very easily translate the angular diameter into a linear diameter. And the blue dots show that the galaxies we're looking at that are the same brightness, the same mass as the Milky Way, are also approximately the same size, something around 10,000 parsecs in radius. If instead we take the expanding universe hypothesis, which has, again, this optical illusion that an object should look larger and larger, going from the same angular diameter, we calculate a much smaller linear dimension. So this yellow dots are the linear dimension calculated with the Big Bang hypothesis. And what you see, this is a logarithmic scale. And what you see is that with that Big Bang hypothesis, you get tinier and tinier galaxies. And even though they say, well, these are baby galaxies, so of course they're small, they're not babies. They're fully grown galaxies with the mass and luminosity of the Milky Way, which is a lot, uh, we live in a fairly big galaxy. And this is where you were saying those yellow dots produce this situation where you get a contradiction between the actual gravitational mass and the right. spectral mass. And that's right. and that contradiction is not found if you just looked at thought about the universe in terms of those blue dots. Right. Because the gravitational mass, this is from Newton's laws, um, can be calculated by saying how fast is an object spinning around? That's the orbital velocity. You square that, multiply it by the linear radius, put in Newton's universal gravitational constant, and you get the mass. So these tiny galaxies with their observed velocity of rotation must have a small amount of gravitating mass but they don't have a small amount of stellar mass. And maybe this is the next step, unless you're going to invent a new form of dark matter that has uh, negative mass, which would completely contradict general relativity, you're not going to resolve this contradiction. Right. And, and just to clarify that the theory about an expanding universe um, was this idea based on the interpretation 
that the entire basis of redshifted light that we're seeing from them is due to the fact that these these things that are from which we're receiving light are actually accelerating away from us. And it basically said that all the different parts of the universe are not just in motion, but everything's accelerating from everything else, getting like picking up speed. And on that on that basis, that was not the acceleration that causes in in their model. It's it's simply the expansion Mm. that causes the redshift. Okay. Now. If we look at it historically, that was a controversial idea. Hubble uh, discovered the correlation between redshift and distance. He did not believe, and he never believed, he never changed this concept during his lifetime. He did not believe that this was due to expansion. He wasn't sure what it was due to, but he didn't think it was due to expansion. And and you and uh, what happened was that the expansion idea was developed by Abbe Lemaitre, uh, basically said, if you take general relativity and very important to hand, you assume the universe is homogenous at the largest scale. So there's no structure to it at the largest scale. Then mathematically, you should get either expansion or contraction. And observationally, it must be expansion. Now people slough over this big assumption and they say, oh, if you have general relativity, you have to believe in the Big Bang. No, you have to have the assumption the universe has no structure at the largest scale. And the interesting thing about that assumption is it was purely ideological. There was no evidence that the universe was homogenous at the time that assumption was made. We looked out with telescopes and we saw that mass was concentrated into stars, very inhomogeneous at the stellar scale. It was concentrated at the next scale into galaxies. There was already evidence in the 1930s for clusters of galaxies. So at the largest scales that they knew about, there was this inhomogeneity. A scientific way of saying that was the larger the scales, the less density. Later in this 20th century, people developed the notion of fractal structure, which we see all over in trees and rivers. Fractal structure means that you have structure at all scales. Mm. And evidence from bigger and bigger telescopes showed that that fractal structure continues at bigger and bigger scales. And that's a, so that hypothesis, that assumption of homogeneity is completely contradicted by observation, was in the 1930s and is to a much larger extent contradicted now. Right. And one of the debates that's also existed is this notion that the redshift 
is just a ref, is just a function of motion uh thing of things moving away from from each other that the red shift could could actually be a result of, like you mentioned tired energy where the actual energy of the light is being affected maybe by electric or electromagnetic stuff in the universe um just by the distance it's traversing so you don't have to invoke motion you could just say that the that the redshift effect is due to that and i think in the when we interviewed you two years ago you didn't say i that you knew what the redshift was about you just thought that this was a that this needed to be a, an open question as to what the basis of red, well, redshift meant basically The universe is either expanding or it isn't. There's there's no intermediate case. Since the observations, and we'll get into some others briefly, clearly show that it is not expanding, then the redshift has to be a function of something that happens to light as it travels. Now, because there is so little matter in density of matter in space. There is no known phenomenon from electromagnetism that would cause the redshift as we understand. So this is an unknown phenomenon that would have to be studied. It's a new modification of electromagnetism. Fortunately, we could study it. We have instruments that when placed on spacecraft could study this at distances we can easily achieve within the solar system. Uh, instruments even placed 5 million kilometers uh, apart at the sort of uh, orbital locations that JWST is at, they could, over a few years, measure this redshift within the solar system. Um, so it's something we can study observation. Now, even though we're adding one unknown physical phenomena that we have not yet observed in the lab, the benefit is we're getting rid of four. Right. We're getting rid of dark energy, which is not that needed, dark matter, which is not needed, the Big Bang process itself, creation out of nothingness, which is not needed. Inflation, the inflation field that's supposed to accelerate the Big Bang and then decelerate, that's not needed. Um, matter, antimatter, asymmetry is not needed. So we get rid of five unknown uh, processes and we add back in one. So the net gain by Occam's razor is four. So that's why. The non-expanding also needs a lot less new hypotheses. Right. It only needs, in fact, one. All the other phenomena that we see in the universe can be described by physical laws that we know work because we observe them in the laboratory. Right. I just want to go briefly into to uh the other big piece of evidence that JWST is developing, which is, uh, and I really want to do this briefly because I want to get into the fusion connection, yeah. is 
when we look at these galaxies, we can see their spectrum, their distribution of light. People know how stars evolve. And big stars, more massive stars, are brighter, bluer, and they have very short lives. As you get less and less massive, you get stars that are less hot, so their colors shift towards the redder end of the spectrum. This isn't a red shift, this is an actual change in color. So our sun, uh, which is a medium to small star, it has the peak of its spectrum in the green part of the spectrum. Now our eyes put all of the light of the sun together and get yellow, but it's the peak of the spectrum is, is green. And as you get to smaller and smaller stars, they are redder and redder and they live longer and longer. Our star, the sun has a lifetime of about 10 billion years, it's halfway through. So if you put all the light in a galaxy together, you can see how old the population of stars are. The population of stars is very young and it's gonna be very blue because it's been going to be dominated by these hot, very bright, very blue stars that don't last very long. As the population ages, it gets just like our appearance changes. We age, the galaxies start to get less blue, more yellow, more red. So we can do that with the JWST data. And what we see is that galaxies that in the Big Bang hypothesis are, are being observed at a time that's supposedly only a few hundred million years after the Big Bang have apparent ages of two or three billion years. So they're much older than the Big Bang. And other people have published papers saying this, it's not just myself and my colleagues. Of course, they've said, well, let's get more data, let's get better spectra, let's check this out, because they, again, don't want to say the emperor is naked, and their paper wouldn't be published under present conditions if they did. But this is, again, a huge contradiction. And pro-Big Bang people have said, well, this is like going to a place where um, you expect to find a nursery and you've got teenagers and middle-aged people because these are middle-aged galaxies like a, the Milky Way. And I say, you know, if you go to a place where you think there's going to be a nursery and instead you find people who look like they should be you know, in nursing homes or at least middle age, maybe you have the wrong address. Maybe <laughs> your theory is wrong. And that's, right. that's, that's what we're saying. Um, and just to be clear, they expected yeah. to see galaxies that would be giving off a lot of blue light. Um, and, things right. like that. and it just wasn't anything like that. You do see, you do see 
galaxies that are young, but you also see galaxies that are not young. And, you know. Oh, I'm sorry. If, and one, if, last, one last thing. What they would have right. expected is more, more of the galaxies as we look back in time would have tended with like a higher concentration of the galaxies would have been blue compared to say yellow, green or yellow or red. Is that the kind of prediction one would make? No, they would predict no green or yellow or red because they wouldn't have time to age that much. That's the difference. We yeah. do see more younger galaxies. And as I said, we're not hypothesizing. Dr. Alfane, myself, none of us are hypothesizing universe that doesn't evolve. As we look back, we're seeing fewer galaxies, but a greater relative birth rate of galaxies. So therefore, you do see more young galaxies than older galaxies. It's just like if today we go from the United States, where the average age is, let's say, 37, to a country in Africa, the average age is perhaps 20. We don't say, well, that's because Africa came into existence 20 years ago. No, it's because there's a higher birth rate. And therefore, even though you know, people have been living in Africa for longer than anywhere else, 300,000 years approximately, um, you do have more young people proportionately in Africa because of the difference in birth rate. So <clears throat> an evolving universe can definitely change. The birth rate, the number of galaxies, all of that can change. It's very different than an expanding universe. And the big bangers try to confuse this because historically, Fred Hoyle, who was another opponent of the Big Bang, did have a theory, which unfortunately was also ideologically based, that the universe was not, it was, he actually thought the universe was expanding, but it was always being filled in by new matter, but never had a Big Bang. But he also hypothesized the universe did not evolve. Now, we don't see that. We see evolution here on Earth. We see the evolution of, of Stars, we see the evolution of galaxies, we see evolution at all time scales and on all space scales. So there's absolutely no reason for a hypothesis that the universe has been in a steady state. But to evolve, it doesn't need to expand. Right. And that is an important thing to say the difference between an, an aging or evolving universe versus an expanding universe are two very different things. Evolving, I would not say aging, mm. because age implies that there was an origin. I see, right. I have an age because I had an origin. I was born, you were right, right. the same thing. The Earth, the same thing. The Earth is, has an age, it's 4.6 billion years old. But the universe, which is our word for all of reality, that does not have an age. And you know, there is no reason, there is no need to hypothesize an origin in time for everything. And in fact, as people even in the 19th century pointed out, 
it's incompatible with the basic hypothesis of science. One of the basic assumptions of science is that for every effect, there's a cause. There's nothing in reality that's supernatural, that is without natural cause. And uh, the Big Bang makes a really big exception. Oh yeah, well, that's true, except for everything, except the universe. The universe has no cause. Just so, I just want to get into first of all a little bit about where the debate stands. So, um, my colleagues and I are planning to produce, I hope, in the fall, scientific papers that use the JWST to demonstrate these contradictions. Um, we also are hoping to organize workshops or conferences among scientists who, you know, either are skeptical or completely reject the expansion to basically have an exchange of views, see where the field needs to go, and to present to the media that it absolutely is not just me that's making this point that there's an observational contradiction. I want to emphasize to you know, the broadest audience that the key usefulness of science is what's being obscured by these big bang cosmologists who have a very big presence in the public media. They basically say, oh, if observations contradict your theory, that's just fine. You just tweak your theory, go on, contradictions arise, tweak, go on. Yeah. And that is not the scientific myth. If observations consistently contradict the theory, it has to be rejected. And I make the analogy that science allows us to get on airplanes, cross the, the ocean with high confidence because of our knowledge of aerodynamics, of engineering, that those airplanes will get across the Atlantic. The Big Bang hypothesis and the idea of science that you just tweak after each failure is like an airline that says, well, in the last 17 flights, we've had 16 crashes, but we understood after the crash each time why it crashed. And, you know, would you fly on such an airline? Obviously, the answer is no. And that's the difference between the scientific myth and what I call the Ptolemaic myth that the Big Bang people are using, which is you can't question the underlying hypothesis, you simply have to tweak it again and again. And just, and I do feel like this is something in general in science um, that goes beyond cosmology, in my opinion, but the increasing divergence between the, like the, the between the observations and the theory to the point where, like you said, the, the observations themselves are not necessary it really seems that what becomes more important is maintaining a particular theory, regardless of what those observations are. 
Um, and in the in the case of cosmology, it's it's a situation where you have the vast majority of, the, of what's in the universe being described by invisible things like dark matter and dark energy and all the things that we know of matter, whether it's plasma or solid or liquid or gas, as being said to be composed 5% of that of that universe, which we end up talking about a universe where 95% of what's in it, we have never observed by yes. any stretch. And I think this gets into the importance of this whole situation in cosmology for the broader society. Because even though cosmology is a very small fraction of the scientific enterprise, it's a very large fraction of the mass media's reporting on science. And it's a very large fraction of what ordinary people think of as science. I mean, one of the most famous scientists of the last decades is the late Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking was a cosmologist. Um, Hawking's work was purely mathematical. Hawking had the honesty to say modestly, well, actually, there has been in my lifetime, no observational evidence for the correctness of any of my theories. Now, he said that, but the mass media never took up on that. Here was this you know, great scientist having Newton's position in, at uh, Cambridge and so on. Was it Oxford? I forget. Um, it, this gives rise to the idea that the scientific enterprise is basically about creating mathematical models. And that the mathematical models, these ideas, do not need testing in the observational world. So this undermines the whole notion of science in the popular mind and the validity of science. I mean, if it is true that you don't need to test your hypotheses, then of course people will say, well, you know, why should I believe the scientist who says this vaccine is gonna prevent COVID? And back in the 1980s, Althane wrote about the ideological consequences of the development of the idea that science can only be understood by, as he was put it, people who could think in 10 dimensions. And that science was this incomprehensible uh, realm of a priesthood. And he said, this is an anti-intellectual factor, perhaps of the first magnitude. And I think that's absolutely true, that the development in the public mind of the idea that science is to be believed but not understood leads to a blurring of the ideas of science and completely irrational uh, occultism, uh, the blending of scientific and totally unscientific or religious 
uh, ideas. We see this splashing over into the whole popular notion of quantum mechanics. I can't get into all of this. We are in, in another series going into the history of physics. Sure, there are things we absolutely do not thoroughly understand about the quantum nature of the, of the world. But quantum mechanics is a rational, comprehensible description of many phenomena in nature that can be understood from a strictly rational viewpoint. And the popular notion of quantum as, you know, quantum jumps, quantum consciousness, the blurring of this line between quantum mechanics Mechanics is how you fix your car. It's not something mystical. And, you know, purely irrational ideas of, you know, uh, the nature of spirit and so on. This undermines the entire usefulness of science to the general population. The general population working class has to be able to understand how the universe works. This definitely flops over into political discourse. Right now, we're engaged in a huge global ideological war, especially accentuated since the beginning of the pandemic, in which you have the multiplication of openly fascistic ideology. Fascism is the ideology of despair, of the idea that human society cannot be changed for the better for everyone, and therefore it becomes, you know, a battle of all against all, and the devil take the hindmost, and that you have to align with your group and destroy the other groups. And that has everything to do with a general view of the universe as, which the Big Bang encourages, as this devolving, aging universe that started from this enormous explosion and has been running down ever since to a heat death. And, you know, you may say, well, it's a huge jump between what's going to happen billions of years in the future and what's happening here and now. But it's not. It's a question of whether there's hope for the future, whether we live in an evolving universe and actually whose evolution is speeding up, especially here on Earth, which is the place we know the best, or a running down universe. I pointed out recently in one of my presentations that if you look into the writings of Adolf Hitler in Mein Kampf, he uses cosmological scientific arguments that were common from the day, the heat death of the universe, by saying that the earth is finite, that its resources are being exhausted, and that therefore only the strongest will survive by destroying the weakness and by seizing their fraction of the resources. And he explicitly makes this idea that 
fascism is only imitating uh, nature. And nature is the battle of all against all for a limited and decreasing number of resources. So this is a great oversimplification, but on the ideological level, the battle between the idea of a universe that is, as I say, running up, not running down, has everything to do with the question of whether we here on earth can make changes in our society that makes things better for everything, everyone. Yes. Obviously, by changing the class structure of society. Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree with you on the notion of the need for revolution in capitalism. Um, I think for me, what's been valuable, what's valuable about the framework that and the understanding that comes is that that's come from your critique of current cosmology is really is the difference between theory and observation or nature or I would say uh, ideas versus reality. And I actually think that it's very it conforms to where where I believe the ruling class is trying to take us into world of the metaverse data collection AI, which is a world of theory and their theory and described by laws that they say those laws not, not only do they not need to be true in many ways many of those laws are lies but they're but they're but they're laws created by them and they want to move us I do believe into a world where their lies are essentially the truth but they diverge from the natural world. And that right. really is, at, in many ways, at the at the center of what's going on in cosmology. Are we going to believe in observations and actual data that we actually can, like, I don't mean data like ones and zeros, but actual things about that we can see in the world. Are we going to say that those we decide, our experience of the world are going to decide what reality is? Or are we going to allow this these theories to, dis- to describe what reality is? And when they diverge, we're going to say, no, the theory is right. The reality is wrong. I actually believe right. that that is the world where you're being conditioned to believe in. Um, and so that is really, I, that's how I see what cosmology is doing as very synonymous with the gaslighting that is occurring on, on all levels of, the, of society. Um, right. So that's how it kind of plays out for me. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a quote from Alfang that I really love and really had a big effect on my own thinking when I read it back in the 80s. Alfang said, to create a grand cosmical drama leads to myth. To step-by-step step substitute knowledge for ignorance in increasing regions of space and time is science. So basically, he's contrasting the idea of the scientific method being generalization from observation, we start from observation, form generalizations, test the predictions of those generalizations against more observations, use that to develop technology, and then start the cycle again with more observations. That scientific method, which goes way back in our history, human history, before the time there were any scientists, is contrasted with the idea of, I'm going to create a beautiful mathematical model of the universe, the theory of everything. And because it's so beautiful, the universe just has to correspond to this model. Um, 
Einstein said this, he was joking, but unfortunately it's what people take as seriously his method. When he was asked by a journalist, what would have happened? What would have he thought if the famous experiment of the bending of light had not confirmed his theory? He said, I would have felt sorry for dear God, the theory is correct. <laughs> he was joking. No, right. Cosmologists are not joking. And no. unfortunately, Dr. Einstein's ambiguity in many of his writings did contribute to this. Sometimes Einstein seemed to be saying, yeah, you can think this all up out of your head. At other times, he flatly contradicted that. I but think that is what we have now, is the idea that we can sit at our computers, we can draw on our um, blackboards these beautiful mathematical equations and know that they're correct. And let me say this to scientists, this is a very seductive idea because it flatters them. It basically, and early in my career, I believe the same thing. I grew up, I was educated in a time where these notions were dominant. And even though I came fairly early on my own to doubt the Big Bang, I didn't really doubt the idea that you could do this mathematical creativity. And it basically says, oh yeah, our scientists are so brilliant. Playing with numbers is fun. I mean, if you if you like that sort of thing, and I do, that we can just derive out of our brain what the universe is like. Well, that's not true, and that's not science. And that's what Alfain, who himself was a socialist, obviously came out of a Marxist tradition. He made a huge point of emphasizing that ideological difference. And we certainly see it in other fields. I mean, since 08 and the crash, we've heard this less from economists because they're seriously discredited, but you still hear, if you don't believe in these policies that were promoting the policies of austerity, policies that basically amount to a mass transfer of wealth from the many to the few, then you just don't understand our equations. So there definitely is this transfer of the idea of a priesthood, a mathematical priesthood that describes the universe or our world in terms that you, the poor working class, can't understand, but we know is right. Right. But I, and I do believe that ultimately we are being shepherded into a world where, where in a sense, our, th our theory will, won't diverge from reality because they're gone. I do believe things like metaverse, things like AI are where more and more of our experience are being shepherded into. And, and, and in that world, their theory will then determine our reality versus the fact that increasingly 
their theories diverge from our reality if 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 we continue or if we are in the actual natural world. And I do right. believe that to me is really the um the fight that that is being waged right now um which is are are we going to fight for actually a humanity and and for a natural world or are we going to be led into a kind of a digital you know techno trap um yeah that- and the natural world won't ignore us because you know the track that capitalism is putting us on is leading to a new dark age yeah yeah, collapse of population, collapse of living standards, things that since the pandemic, we've unfortunately started to observe in the real world. This is not something. And why not? I mean, in the so let, let's transition yeah. to the fusion connection. Yes, because there I was also. Myself. Yeah, I don't know if you're going to talk about it. There was a, a, several months back a recent statement that there had been a breakthrough in fusion. I don't know if this is going to come up in your dis, in your discussion. Right. Well, there's a big connection between cosmology, astrophysics, and fusion, and particularly the work that we're doing at LPP Fusion, which is in order to attain the conditions to release fusion energy here on Earth, we have to study how plasmas exist in nature, in the universe. Now, fusion energy is the energy that drives the sun, all the stars. It's the basic energy source in the universe. Here on Earth, you need high temperature, high density to get the fusion reactions to occur before the plasma blows itself apart. Most of our colleagues in fusion look at the natural instabilities, the natural wiggliness of plasma, and they say, well, as good engineers, we have to get the plasma to be stable, to behave, sit like a good dog. And that's very, very difficult because in nature, plasmas are naturally unstable. And this is at all scales. Basically, plasmas, as Alphane and his colleagues discovered, scale in such a way that velocities tend to be the same at every scale. That means that time scales like distance. So events that in the laboratory happen in a microsecond on a galactic scale take billions of years. So even though galaxies, you know, by human scales, exist for tremendous lengths of time, relative to their size, they're essentially transient events. A scientific way of saying this is that in a typical plasma, energy, energy within the plasma, circulates at maximum about a thousand times before the plasma disintegrates or the instability moves on to something else. One of the basic instabilities we study is the filamentation instability, where currents moving in the same direction through their magnetic fields attract each other and form little vortices or filaments. This basic process was discovered by Faraday 200 years ago, but there's a lot to be learned about it. 
And we learn about it by studying these processes at the scale. Uh, the aurora, solar flares, quasars at all astrophysical scales. Now, the connection is that if you study these phenomena as plasma physics plus gravitation at these large scales, you reach conclusions that completely contradict the Big Bang. First of all, the time scale of the formation of the largest objects we see has to be trillions of years, two orders of magnitude more than the supposed time since the Big Bang. So there's a contradiction between the Big Bang and our ability to study plasma phenomena at all scales. In our approach at LPP Fusion, we're using a device called the dense plasma focus, which tries to exploit or use the instabilities that we observe in nature to produce plasma. So we like to compare ourselves to the Wright brothers. The Wright brothers learned how to control flight by studying how birds control their own flight. And we're trying to get to fusion energy faster by imitating nature, not trying to fight it. So um, that's a big connection. And we've been, we actually started this work. I personally started my work in the 1980s by using the phenomenon of quasars as a quantitative, as a way of quantitatively studying the scaling of this dense plasma focused device. And for people who, I'm sure I went over this three years ago, but uh, for people who don't familiar with it, this device is quite simple. And uh, here we can go to the screen yeah. share. Yeah, go ahead. So this is what is the, uh, this is a exact model of the inside of our device. And for scale, this center electrode, which is the anode, is only uh, six centimeters. So less than uh, three inches in diameter. So this is a very small central core. And this is inside a vacuum chamber that's filled with the gas that's the fuel. And what happens is that when a capacitor, which is an energy storage device, releases the energy, and this is, and happens over space of just a microsecond, and electrons start to flow from the cathode to the anode. So electrons start to flow from the cathode to the anode. And very rapidly, what happens is these instabilities. So these instabilities form the filaments that travel to the end of the anode. This happens only, again, 
in about a microsecond. Once they get to the end, they fountain together. and form a single filament which pinches through these electromagnetic forces and kinks itself up into a plasmoid. Into a plasmoid, you said, right? Yes. So this is obviously an animation of the process but we and other scientists have taken images, seen this process work. And we also see it work at much larger scales, such as in solar flares. So you get a kinking effect and the kink further kinks, as I like to say, if you remember the landlines, that's what the wires look, looked like when they tie themselves into a knot. Mm -hmm. This creates a little knot called the plasmoid. And within that little knot, which compresses itself down to only a few hundred microns, a fraction of a millimeter, you get the very high temperatures needed to push the nuclei together and to have fusion reactions. And we've achieved and published in peer-reviewed journals, temperatures up to two and a half billion degrees. That's 200 times temperature at the center of our sun. So that's basically how the device produces energy. So the great advantage of this is, first of all, it's a very compact device. It's a very simple to build device. We built the device uh, starting in uh, 2009 for about half a million dollars. So it's very different than people who may have read about the $20 billion eater, which is weighs 30,000, 300,000 tons. Our device weighs three tons and it fits in a small room. We also are planning to use a very different fuel. Now, some other companies are planning to use the same fuel because it has such big advantages, which is hydrogen plus boron. And what we see is here, the boron has uh, five protons and six neutrons. Proton, they come together and they fuse only briefly, and then they break apart to form three helium nuclei. The important thing about this reaction is that there are no neutrons produced. Neutrons are what produce radioactive waste. Also, they're very destructive of uh, metals, so you can't build a very small, powerful device if you're producing neutrons. And the third point, and this is the most important, because the energy from the PB11 reaction goes purely into the motion of charged particles, and the motion of charged particles is electricity, 
you can get electricity in a circuit by direct conversion without going through a heat cycle where you heat up water to produce steam, to drive a generator, to drive a turbine, which is very expensive. So using PV11 fuel can potentially get to electricity generators that are 10 times cheaper than any existing source. We and a number of other companies are using that. But combining this with our uh, dense plasma focused device, we have achieved fusion results that are hundreds of times better than those of any other private company, even though we've only spent about 10 or $11 million on this project. And we are almost, not quite, catching up with comparable results from the biggest government projects like uh, the JET Tokamak in the UK. To answer your question about the National Ignition Facility NIF results. Let me, oh, can I stop you on one thing? Because yeah. you just made a point that I didn't actually know from your last presentation, which is I had assumed when you talked about heat generation from the plasma that well, once again, oh, it's it, it's a, maybe a cleaner way of generating heat, but again, it would be boiling water, turning a turbine, turning a magnet, producing electricity. But what you told me just now is that that this is not really a, as much about the heat generation as the fusion process, which could then be connected directly to electrical generation. That's, right. That's Let me just one of the beauties of the plasma process in the dense plasma focus is that it produces most of the energy. And this is given to us just by Mother Nature. The plasmoid produces a beam of ions. So ions are this positive nuclei, mostly helium nuclei, that travels in this illustration downward from the uh, center of the device. Now this of course, is a again an animation of what an actual generator would look like, uh, not our experimental device. But we put the we put the uh, person here for scale, a fusion generator of our design that would produce five megawatts of power would be about this size. So five megawatts would drive the uh, energy needs, entire energy needs of a small town or a great city in a neighborhood. So what this small device would do is produce most of its energy, about two thirds of its energy in the form of a beam. And a beam of, of charged particles can travel through an inductor, which is a coil of wire or a, or a somewhat more complicated geometry. The changing magnetic field produces an electric current directly in that uh, coil of wire. This is, this is some physics that's been known for two centuries. 
So you get direct conversion into electricity by this method. Second of all, it's very compact, very cheap. Second of all, about a third of the energy comes off as x-rays. An intense pulse of x-rays. And we have a patented device that works on the well-known photoelectric principle. So we have many layers of um, thin metal foils that convert some of the x-rays into the energy of electrons. And grids capture those electrons and convert their energy into, again, stored energy that can be fed directly into the grid. So what do you have instead of these huge turbines and generators, you have two very compact methods of converting the fusion energy directly into electricity. Again, not only we, but some of our, our rival companies are planning to use various types of direct conversion because they plan to use the same HV11 fuel. But since our device is also very dense, very small, uh, it's definitely the cheapest way to uh, produce electricity if we can be successful with the research phase. So the other thing about having such a small generator, a five megawatt generator, is that it can be very decentralized power. Individual towns can have their own source of power. So regional blackouts, such as the United States has been suffering from, especially since the deregulation of the at the beginning of the 21st century, they would be a thing of the past because you wouldn't have the centralized generation of power. This would be decentralized power. If you wanted a lot of power to run an aluminum plant or something, you just stack these devices. And these devices would be mass produced on an assembly line like automobiles. They wouldn't have to be built in place. So that's the general story. Um, where we are in our research is we are about to start, we hope next month, experimenting with the PV11 fuel. We've been experimenting and we made great progress with pure deuterium, which is easier to experiment with. Uh, and we think if everything goes right, we may be able to generate, to demonstrate in the laboratory more energy out of the device than goes into it. And that's a good point to compare with NIF. NIF is a giant uh, laser focused on a very tiny pellet. And the main justification of NIF is not fusion energy research. I don't make a secret of this. The main justification NIF is to simulate thermonuclear weapon explosions without mm. actually exploding them, which is, of course, today prohibited. So what NIF achieved was more fusion energy out of the pellet than they put laser energy into the pellet. 
That's different than net energy into the device. They put a hundred times more energy into running the laser than they got out as fusion. So that nobody says that this is a route to practical fusion energy. What we are aiming for and what other people developing fusion energy generators is to get as a first step in the laboratory, more energy out of an entire device than you put into it. So that's what people call 100% wall plug efficiency, uh, Q total of one, there's various names for it. We call it net energy. If we can achieve that in the laboratory, then we need a much bigger engineering project perhaps $100, $200 million to turn that device into a working prototype firing approximately 200 times a second. Of course, there are still uncertainties in our research, but our biggest problem, plug coming, is money. We have a team of three full-time people with three full-time people and one very important part-time person, we've been able to achieve more than fusion efforts that have a thousand times our resources. But it isn't enough for efficient uh, work. We really need to hire at least two more people. So what we're trying to do is raise from the general public via crowdfunding on the WeFunder platform at least $2 million and preferably $5 million in this year so that we can move as rapidly as possible to completing the research phase, um, which I think will make it a lot easier to raise the much greater sums of money that we need for development. So I do invite your listeners to uh, and viewers to visit us on the WeFunder page this is for everybody. The minimum investment is $200. And we think that it's a, it's a pretty good investment in your future. And we can put that link in the description as well. Right. Like, like that. Um, two questions. And one I wanted to clarify. Did you say that the NIF, the NIF project, the one that has been popularized and we heard about, you, are you saying that the types of technology that's being developed seeming are, are are actually more for applic military applications or they just happen to correlate with military applications can you say more about that and then i have a question about your your okay. um, program. nif is explicitly funded by the government yeah. as a primarily as a weapon simulator okay. and if you watched the uh the uh announcement the formal press conference they had about five people, four or five people say how this was a step towards simulating the weapons before they had a person say, oh, this is also a step towards uh, a big breakthrough for okay. future energy. Yep, so this isn't a secret. This is this is definitely their motivation I gotcha. for doing, for justifying spending a really significant amount of money. I forget how much it it is right now. It's about $10 billion they've spent. Um, the reason it isn't practical 
as a fusion generator is, first of all, even if the entire pellet burned up, they would not get back the 400 megajoules that they put in. And they'd have to get back a lot more because this uses a different fuel. This uses deuterium tritium, where the energy comes off in the form of an energetic neutron. And there you have to use Edison's and other people's old heat cycle. You have to use the neutrons to heat up water to drive a turbine and a generator. That's quite inefficient. And there's no way they could get back enough energy to make that practical. There are other efforts that are using lasers more efficiently to try and use the laser approach to get fusion energy. I do not think, I think that there's big scientific and engineering reasons that it's impossible to get economical fusion energy using the DT fuel. Uh, you have to, you pretty much have to use HB11. So that said, uh, if you use HB11, some of our colleagues, including some very good scientists, are trying to use lasers to heat the HB11, the PB11 fuel, and get to fusion generators that way. But the thing to understand about NIF and all the arguments about what did they prove or what did they not prove, it was a significant advance in the sense that no one had even gotten energy out of the plasma more than was put into it. But it isn't net energy in the way that we and other fusion energy people are talking about. That has to be more energy out of the device than you put into the device. Um, one question that's come that has come up in terms of looking at these alternative energy um, areas, particularly around the Green New Deal stuff and around solar energy and even hydroelectric, um, is it, it has now created a new instead of the ground and the environment being destroyed as a result of trying to get oil. Now you have lithium and cadmium and all these various rare metals that people are, you know, uh, essentially ripping up the earth to do. We've had a guest, Max Wilbert, who is trying to stop a lithium mine that's going to completely destroy a section of Oregon um, and and Native community, uh, Native American community. What about the resources that are required for for your project at scale, will that also then, well, how will that interact with that issue? Right. PB11 fuel, hydrogen boron, is the material that is the most energy dense material that we know of. The energy in a single gram of this PB11 fuel converted into electricity is the same as the, the energy in a ton of oil. It's a million times more energy dense. Right now, fossil fuel, we're con, uh, consuming fossil fuels at a rate of about 14 or 15 billion tons 
of fossil fuels per year. And the requirements for solar energy, you're right, are very complicated. You you're talking about billions of tons per year to have a solar grid that would replace fossil fuels. With focus fusion, which is what we call the combination of dense plasma focus and this PV11 fuel, the world will be con consuming thousands of tons of fuel a year. So you've got a million-fold decrease, more than a million-fold decrease in the impact on the environment. Boron is right now mined out of the ground. If we went to a completely PV11 focus fusion economy with no fossil fuels, we would only have to increase boron production by 10%. These devices are also themselves very compact. The main uh, ingredient is beryllium for the electrodes. There is a little beryllium produced, 400 tons per year, that we would have to increase production substantially to about 4,000 tons a year. But beryllium is not a rare material. It's about as abundant in the Earth's crust as lead. So we can easily get all of these materials out of the ground and have essentially a million the impact of either fossil fuels or solar or wind. That's what we say is the energy density argument. The only way society has advanced is because the energy density of fossil fuels is much greater than that of wood, which is preceded. The energy density of focus fusion is a million times that of fossil fuels. That's why we can get enough energy for everyone to have an ideal standard of living, but at the same time, vastly reduce the impact on the environment. And not only because the energy is gonna have less impact, we already have technologies, commercialized technologies, like one called the plasma torch, which can completely recycle waste of any type. It can disintegrate waste into useful elements. The reason this is not used generally, and it is used in some special uh, applications, is because its energy cost is so great. But with energy being far cheaper, we could create a closed cycle economy in which there is essentially no pollution, that all waste from any source is recycled. So we'll stop polluting the, you know, polluting our water supply with, uh, you know, 4,000 or 8,000, I think the number of chemicals that have not been tested by the government will stop poisoning the oceans will stop poisoning the air because all of the waste products that are produced will be completely recycled. So that's what's possible. Hmm. I mean, I would say that for me, what's my journey has taken me in terms of, I, we're both socialists. I think we both want a revolution. My 
I, I, I hope you're, what you guys are doing is possible and able to, to do that at one level. I, I think I do. I have become so um, disenchanted with technology and so, so much a sense that, that, those, that technology itself has become a bit of a trap. I've probably moved more towards those original Luddites who said we're going to have to kind of like get rid of all this and just start from scratch in terms of human, humans to humans, humans to earth and things like that. Um, I don't know how we get there, but I think that's been more my thought of the journey. Um, the question is technology for whom? I mean, the way to understand society, as we learn from Marx and Engels 150, 160 years ago, is to view present day society in terms of classes. Right now, the class that owns and runs society. And we're talking about terms of the real ruling class. A few thousands of people, 10,000 people, roughly equivalent to the number of billionaires, the billionaire class that sits on the boards of directors of the giant financial companies that own directly 70% of the companies in, in the United States, 70% of the production in the United States. Um, their interests, maintaining a system that has run into its natural limits is completely inimical to ours. They're using technology in order to transfer wealth from billions of people to themselves. And that's going to run the economy, the ecology, and eventually the human race into the ground. We've seen a first state, taste of that with the pandemic. The working class can use technology to move beyond this class society. I mean, I've always said fusion can be developed to the point of practicality under capitalist society. But implementing fusion requires the next step because implementing fusion energy will completely torpedo the price of oil. And as we saw during the early stages of the pandemic, the price of oil drops, the entire financial system grinds to a halt. That's what we saw in March of uh, 2020, when briefly the boom, yeah. price of oil dropped to 10 or $20 a barrel. There was a complete meltdown of the financial system, and the financial system had to be rescued by giving $3 trillion in the United States alone of taxpayer money directly to the financial institutions. So implementation of focus fusion would mean that these financial institutions would become entirely bankrupt. And we would have to, as a society, develop the means to run the financial system as a democratically run system, not just state-owned, Chinese have a state-owned financial system, but it's run in the interest of the capitalist class. Yeah. We would need 
financial system, a control of the economy that's democratically controlled by the working class as part of the transition to fusion. Excuse me. Yeah, I mean, I think I think my I I used to have a view of the as essentially the the, the tools, the means of production as a essentially a neutral ball controlled by the capitalists, but if the working class could just get hold of it, use it for its own. Yeah. I mean, that's a common Marxist phrase. I am increasingly developing the notion or developed the notion in my head that the, the tools themselves are not neutral, that the tools themselves are a function of the system we live in. Um, and I, I probably do have deeper questions of whether we can utilize them. Wow. Certainly on the time scale you're talking about prior to nuclear war that seems in inevitable if capitalism continues. Um, and okay, well, incredible quickly, you know, but, but I do think I, what I really value is your pursuit, um, your pursuit in a way that I do agree with, which is reality is, is about observation and experience. And, and if, and if my observation and experience don't match my theory, then I'm prepared to change my theory. That, that I think is an important part of just human intellectual pursuit and humans trying to make sense of their world. And I do believe there's a, there's something happening in the world in which that is being consciously diverted um, and diverging from each other. Um, and so, you know, that's why I really appreciate you, you know, the work you're doing. Um, and I feel like the exposures you're making of mainstream science, mainstream ideology in, in doing it. Well, there is definitely a connection between technology and class structure. I mean, century and a half ago, Marx wrote, you know, given the windmills, you get a feudal lord. Given the steam engine, coal-driven steam engine, you get a capitalist. Given focus fusion, you get socialism. <laughs> that is basically the, the updated version. <laughs> The forms of energy production in human society, and you can go back in history, are definitely linked with the forms of class society. The class society we have, capitalist society as it's existed for three centuries, is linked to the development of fossil fuels. That society has reached a historical dead end, and it has to be superseded if humanity is to continue to advance. It has to be superseded by fusion energy on the technological, and by a socialist form, a democratic running of the economy on the social end. That's the alternative to the further development of humanity. The other alternative is a new dark age. Yeah. So that's why we think it's really important for the working class and especially people who are committed to socialism to learn about fusion, to disseminate this information, to demand that the government fund fusion research on a much larger scale. We are not being funded by the government at all at the moment, and we should be, and to contribute themselves to this effort. So on that, I'll say good afternoon, because I've got to run. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. Um, let's let's sign off. And I appreciate this, Eric. Okay. And, um, I appreciate what you're taking all this time to share all this. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm sure folks will have comments and questions for us in this episode, but I'm really just glad we can talk about it here. Uh, okay. Uh, again, thanks, Eric Lerner, um, chief scientist at LPP Fusion and um, author of the Bing, the Big Bang Never Happened. Thank you for being here today and going through all of this stuff. Yeah, with with us. Um, that does it for this week's episode. What's left is a weekly political podcast channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes wherever you found this episode or on our blog, What's Left podcast.com you can find past episodes of this podcast channel there and connect with us i remind i remind you if you like anything you've heard here please subscribe rate review turn on your notifications to any of our nine platforms on spotify itunes stitcher google play bitshoot odyssey rumble youtube or telegram um, if you'd like to give us any feedback or about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover Contest, contact us through our blog. And if you'd like to make a do donation to LPP Fusion and be part of that uh, process, we're going to post a link to um, the the we what's it called? A we fund? It's it's actually an investment. You'd ah. be buying shares okay. in the company. Oh, I see. okay, um, yeah. And what's it? It's a we fund me. What's the we funder? We funder. Okay, as we to invest in uh, this this um, energy production pro uh, project that Eric is talking about. Um, then you'll find that in the description. Um, so that's all from us. Uh, Eric, I mean, um, Eduardo and Jessica will be back, I think, next week. Um, thank you, Eric. And um, we'll see each other or we'll see everyone next week.